Hello and welcome to Immunity, your immunology podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Bianca Redenbaugh. And I'm Lara Dungan. And this is the podcast where we tell you all about the most exciting research going on in the world of immunology. So grab a cup of tea, sit down and relax, and we'll fill you in. We're here to talk about what research is being done, what new treatments we should be watching out for, and what's happening in the immunology labs and clinics all around the world. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at immunotpodcast at gmail.com. That's immunotea, spelled I-M-M-U-N-O-T-E-A, podcast at gmail.com. Or you can tweet us at immunotea. Don't forget that's T-E-A. Now, I'm delighted to introduce our guest for this month, Professor Stuart Tangi. Stuart completed his PhD on B-cell leukemia at the University of Technology, Sydney in 1995. He then undertook postdoctoral training at the DNAx Research Institute for Molecular and Cellular Biology in Palo Alto, California until 1999. He then returned to Australia in 2000 as a University of Sydney Research Fellow and established his own independent research lab in 2002. Stuart is the Senior Principal Research Fellow at the Garvin Institute of Medical Research in Sydney. He has over 25 years of experience and expertise in the fields of human cellular and molecular immunology and inborn errors of immunity. He has won numerous national and international awards and has published over 250 peer-reviewed articles. Stuart, you are very welcome to the show. Thanks for hosting me. This is going to be fun. We're very, very excited. Look, there's such an impressive back catalogue of publications that we could talk to you pretty much about anything. But clearly, you love B-cells. So why don't we start there? Just briefly, for those listening, can you remind the audience what a B-cell is and how it functions normally? Yeah, of course. So... B-cells is one of our blood cells that uh, really comprises a fundamental part of the immune system. And as you know, our immune system is there to protect us from from infection. So infection of different types of microbes or pathogens. And what the B-cell does, it makes soluble factors called antibodies or immunoglobulins. So these are soluble factors that are secreted by B-cells. And they, uh, they function to bind to and neutralize bacteria, viruses, and they clear those pathogens out of our system. And I guess with um, SARS-CoV-2, one thing we can sort of be grateful for is that I think the public's become much more well-educated on understanding antibody levels, antibody teeters, and so on. So when two people talk about declining immunity or antibody teeters, they're really talking about what the B cells do or have done, and that is to become a a cell type, which has got a plasma cell, and that's an antibody-producing factory, which just persists for a very long time in our body, particularly in the bone marrow. And it just pumps out antibodies for uh, almost you know infinite lifetime to protect us long term against all different types of bugs that we've been exposed to, or bugs that we're vaccinated against during childhood or adult vaccine programs. You're right in how that's really come to light with everyone during COVID. Can you talk to us a little bit about the life cycle of a B cell? Yeah, so this is actually a fascinating question. Uh, so a B cell starts its life in the bone marrow. And it sort of ends its life in the bone marrow as well. So uh, I think of B cells or, in fact, all immune cells as almost like children. You know, they start off as very young uh, cells that really don't know what they're doing yet. Uh, But they undergo these educational processes in the bone marrow and they become what we call a mature B cell. So from the first time they, they arise in the bone marrow to when they leave the bone marrow for the first time, they've been selected so that they will be functional and that they won't react against our own tissues and possibly then cause autoimmune disease. 
So at a particular stage, once they've gone through those sort of checks and balances, the B cells will leave the bone marrow and then essentially circulate throughout our body. Clearly, when you have a blood test, uh, that's one way that we can find B cells. But B cells are distributed right across our body, in our blood, but in our what's called secondary lymphoid tissues. And they're things like spleen, your your um, lymph nodes, um, your tonsils. Uh, and there's a whole lot of what's called mucosal-associated immune tissues, which are scattered throughout our gut, through the intestine. So the B cells circulate through our body, and pretty much they're sort of hunters. They're on the prowl looking for things which shouldn't be there. And that's pretty much the role of all immune cells. Different immune cells just have different ways of doing that. But the B cells are really looking for specific antigens, typically in the form of microbes, uh, which are foreign to ourselves. So then when they encounter those cells, somehow they migrate into these sites of um, secondary immune tissues. And that's where a lot of um, incredible molecular changes happen to a B cell. A lot of cellular processes and biochemical processes occur. And it's a real example of Darwinian survival of the fittest. What we're looking for here is trying to, in very quick time, and I'm talking days to weeks here, for a B cell to undergo what's called clonal expansion. So one B cell divides and makes a copy of itself, and that happens over and over and over again. But it doesn't happen endlessly. What happens, there's a screening process whereby the B cells that have the greatest ability to bind to the foreign entity to which it first recognized, they're the ones that survive because they're really competing for survival signals. And this is when it comes down to survival of the fittest. So the B cells that are sort of strongest and fittest and fastest and best survive. And once they survive, they can then become plasma cells, like I mentioned a moment ago, or they can become memory B cells. Uh, and the plasma cells, those antibody-secreting cells, they're the cells that then sort of return to the bone marrow. So they sort of go back to where it all started. And they take up residence in uh, particular parts of the bone marrow, bone marrow, where they can survive for incredibly long periods of time, uh, decades even, even f- in some studies have shown more than that. And they can persist and just keep making antibodies. So plasma cells sort of return to where B cells, were, where their life started. But then the other side of what we call long-lived um, B-cell memory is the generation of memory B-cells. So that's another type of B-cell which can remain in the tissue that was generated, so typically like those tonsils, spleens, as I mentioned. But they can also recirculate amongst tissues, through the blood. They can go through the bone marrow as well. And they're also, like mature B-cells, on the lookout for foreign substances, foreign antigens, so that they can re- uh, have a recall response that's much, much greater and more accelerated than the initial response. And that's really why classically we only sort of get infected and get sick by by a pathogen once clearly that's not the case because people are getting covid multiple times for example or we need to get vaccine boosters against tetanus or diphtheria every five to ten years but the general idea is you have this memory immune response which is much more quicker much more rapid much of greater affinity so that you sort of clear those infections before really getting sick Um, So that's what the B-cell does. It starts and ends its life in the bone marrow, um, but a lot of B-cells, memory B-cells, can continue to circulate throughout the body, pretty much, as I said, on the lookout for for what shouldn't be there. It's really amazing how long the cells can live. I can't get my head around that sometimes. They just seem to last forever. In your papers, you've written that the critical role of humoral immunity in host defence is evident from inborn errors of immunity that impact B-cells, inborn errors of immunity, IEIs. They can disrupt human B-cell differentiation by intrinsic and extrinsic mechanisms. Can you talk us through what this means? Yeah, absolutely. 
So the beauty and the complexity of the immune system is it's a bit like a sports team or any network. The immune system is much, much greater than the sum of the parts. So whilst I love B cells, as you said, it's sort of an embarrassment to admit that uh, without help from other cell types, they're actually not so great. Uh, so B cells themselves, uh, whilst they can do all those fantastic things that I said, they can move around the body, they can respond to antigens, they can become antibody secreting cells, plasma cells. They actually need significant instruction and guidance and help from, from T cells and particularly a subset of CD4 or helper T cells to do that. So when it comes to inborn errors of immunity, so these are these conditions which are relatively rare, but we now know there's more than 500 um, inborn errors of immunity. So when you add them all up, they're actually significant in terms of uh, disease burden in the general community. This is diseases which are caused by a single gene. So in our genome, we have 20 to 22,000 genes. And there's a lot of genes which we can probably do without. Um, and what I mean by that is if there's a if one gene pop, drops out or there's a mistake in a gene, there's often another gene that'll step into that role and it'll, it'll uh, pick up its role. So it'll compensate for the absence of that gene. But what inborn errors of immunity show us is that if you have a defect in one single gene and you end up in, a, in hospital or you end up seeing with recurrent infections, it tells you whether whatever that gene is, it's non-redundant um, because if you don't have it or if it's not working at maximum capacity, you get sick. So there's critical requirements for those genes and subsequent pathways that those gene products are involved in for, in this case, humoral immunity. So what I mean by intrinsic and extrinsic defects or requirements so as i said if if there's a the b cells obviously are very very important uh, they do terrific things i make antibodies but there's a lot of pathways uh which feed into the b cell and if the b cell can't sort of interpret those signals or if they can't provide signals from the outside of the cell to the inside uh, the b cells aren't going to respond properly uh, and that's sort of a b cell intrinsic defect and these have been reported for, for decades and in fact one of the earliest uh, inborn error of immunity was in fact an example of a young boy who over a short period of time had had, I think it was 18 cases of recurrent life-threatening pneumonia. And this was in the 50s, so 70 plus years ago now. And basically it was found that that boy didn't have any B cells in his peripheral blood. And that's because a gene which was important for the generation of B cells was defective. So basically he couldn't generate mature B cells. So he was completely lacking B cells and as a result, completely lacking antibodies or immunoglobulins. So that's a B cell intrinsic defect. But on the other hand, as I said, B cells, they actually need help. Uh, so you can have B cells that if you take them out of somebody, a patient, and test them in the in the Petri dish, they're totally fine. And that's because I'm giving them signals. But if the source of those signals is lacking or uh, defective, uh, the B cells just can't be told what to do. They, it's, it's a bit like them being um, you know, blind or deaf or something. They can't see where to go. They can't he- hear what to do. They can't be told where to, what to do. So they're sort of intra- extrinsic signals, particularly in the context of CD4 T cells. So if a CD4 T cell can't make a particular molecule, which is important for helping the B cell, the B cell can be as healthy and as good as it as you want it to be. But if it's not picking up the signal, it's not going to do what it's told. So that's sort of that's the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic. In many cases, though, you can have quantitative defects in both B cells and T cells. So uh, there's sort of a combinatorial defect there because both cells, which are really important for humoral immunity, uh, are themselves compromised. So when you come together, the defect is, is again, um, compounded by the individual defect in each cell type. Okay, that helps me understand a little bit about the difference between the intrinsic and extrinsic mechanisms. So what are some of the diseases that result from the 
intrinsic mechanisms that disrupt B cell differentiation. Yeah. So as I mentioned, one of the first cases was uh, a famous case report published in 1952 by a clinician in the US called Colonel Ogden Bruton. So as a result of that, there was a disease that was called Bruton's disease. Um, Now, keeping in mind, this was back in the 50s, before we knew about lymphocytes, before we knew about antibodies in terms of what they were, before we'd even discovered T cells and B cells and subsets and so on. So um, Colonel Bruton uh, described this young boy, as I said, who was detected to, found to have no antibodies in his blood. So that was called agammaglobulinemia, meaning no gamma globulins, no antibodies. And as the gene that caused that disease was discovered um, 40 years later, the gene was called Bruton's tyrosine kinase, so BTK. So uh, there's a disease that's called Bruton's agammaglobulinemia is one of the the classics of B-cell defects. But as I mentioned, there's actually 500 diseases which are caused by single gene defects. And there's probably at least 50, I can't remember that, I don't know the exact number, I should. Um, There's probably 50 to 80 of those gene defects which result in in a defect in humoral immunity. Not all of them are B-cell intrinsic. And these days we've sort of moved away from giving them particular names, um, mainly to sort of tighten up the definition of the disease and also to indicate what the genetic defect is so for example so these days we might call it cd19 deficiency because that actually describes exactly what the defect is there's a a, a molecule expressed on b cells called cd19 and there's a genetic defect which prevents that protein from being expressed so we'd call that disease cd19 deficiency rather than ascribing it to a syndromic sort of name because there's a lot of immunodeficiencies that have been called syndromes so wiscott ordered syndrome hyper igm syndrome hyper ig syndromes but they often don't really capture the key clinical features, nor the genetic or cellular defect that causes that condition. So whilst once upon a time, I guess, clinically, that was sort of helpful, uh, these days when we've got so many clinical diagnostic tests, so many ways to diagnose patients genetically, those sort of syndromic names are less less, uh, informative and telling in terms of reporting the patient's condition and actually guiding therapies. I feel like from when I was a medical student, eponymous titles are the most irritating thing of all time. They tell you nothing and you just have to remember them. Anyway, listen, now that we're discussing IEIs, how important is it to study these in humans to assess the function of B cells? Are mouse models not sufficient? So that's a really good question. And I'm someone who's always worked in human immunology. So my bias is to say, oh, absolutely. And and I, of course, stand by that. Uh, And there's several reasons for that. One is... Unlike some mouse models, uh, the human presents the situation in a case of uh, probably a genetic situation. What I mean is if someone is is sick and if they're young and they're unwell and they have recurrent infections or they have really bad autoimmune disease or they have really bad eczema or really bad allergies, that's likely to be caused by a single gene defect if it's this very early onset, early presentation. And particularly if there's some sort of family history, it's likely to be genetic. And the thing that's, that's irrefutable there is that gene or that pathway is critical for immune homeostasis, whether it to be to protect you against infection or to prevent autoimmune disease or to control allergy. It just tells you that no matter what the answer is, that gene is fundamental for for human immune regulation. So identifying what causes that disease is really important. So it, it, again, it tells you a non-redundant uh, fundamental role for a particular gene or pathway in a biological process. And uh, not so much of these days, but in the past, I would have to defend my choice of studying rare patients because people would say, oh, but 
big deal. You know, these patients are so rare. How is that going to tell us about general health? And um, fortunately, these days, I think the pendulum has swung a bit and people do recognize, um, probably because a lot of people in my field have successfully lobbied or made people change their mind, showing that studying rare patients does give you an answer. And again, SARS-CoV-2 has shown us that as well. Uh, some of the biggest findings, I think, from SARS-CoV-2 in terms of causation of severe COVID in otherwise healthy individuals has come from the study of inborn errors of immunity. Um, the development of drugs has come from um, some inborn errors of immunity. That example I mentioned before about Bruton's tyrosine kinase, it's not difficult to draw a link between the discovery of a gene that is important for the human body to make B cells to the development of a drug called abrutinib, which is used to treat B-cell malignancies, some B-cell autoimmune diseases, because if you could know how to control a B-cell, and if you know the gene that stops B-cells being developed if it doesn't work, you can tell if you turn that gene down, you're probably going to turn down B-cell activity. So inborn errors of immunity in the B-cell space, but in the T-cell space, every space, has really informed fundamental requirements for host defense against a whole range of infections. And that's also highlighted, for example, uh, the consequences of, of treating some... Um, autoimmune or inflammatory diseases with biologic. So one, one instance there is years ago, my, my lab published a paper on, um, on an inborn error of immunity called STAT3 deficiency. And what we found is that those patients, not we didn't find this, there was one known those patients had really bad fungal infections. And we worked out why it was because these patients didn't make what's called TH17 cells. And we actually put in that paper, um, and this was 16 years ago, we put in this that paper. Oh, so if you target TH17 cells, or if you target the factors that drive TH17 cell generation, you might end up in causing increased incidence of fungal infections. And sure enough, 15 years later, people are using drugs that target TH17 cells, like anti-IL-23 antibodies and so on, to treat psoriasis. And sure enough, incidence of fungal infections is increased significantly. Um, now that's not so problematic because that can be treated with antifungals. But the point is. If you have a patient who doesn't signal through a particular pathway and they have this clinical phenotype, if you hit that pathway um, therapeutically with a biologic, you're going to predict the off-target effects, the side effects that may happen in there. So I think it's really important to study inborn errors of immunity across the spectrum because it's going to tell you something that's really important, fundamental about human immunology. Now, your second question there was, are mouse models no good? I don't agree with that. Um, mouse, I think... As a biologist and as a scientist, I think we all need to acknowledge the limitations of our system. Now, I'm a human immunologist, but I culture lymphocytes in a plastic dish, and that's as artificial as you can get. But is that any more artificial than using transgenic mice and, or genetically engineered highly inbred mice and so on? Probably not. But we can't overlook the fact that there are f really significant species-specific differences between mice and humans. And for some reason that's not clear to me, when it comes to B-cell development, uh, there are significant differences between mice and humans. So to study, to understand some processes, if they're not completely recapitulated in mouse models, uh, there's no doubt that you've got to recognize that as a, as a limitation of the study. And for that reason, study that process in, in the right model. In this case, it'd be humans. So humans aren't just big mice. That's amazing that you predicted fungal infections and STAT3 mutations 15 years in advance. Um, can we delve a bit deeper into one specific cytokine, interleukin-21? So what role does it play in B-cell biology and what pathways does it signal through? 
So, so my, I've been interested in R21 pretty much since it was discovered. Um, interestingly, when I was doing my PhD, I was actually studying the role of um, cytokine-mediated uh, regulation of B-cell survival in B-cell malignancy. So I was always interested in cytokine biology. And then I went to a DNAX research institute uh, where a lot of cytokines were cloned in the 80s and 90s and so on. So I was really interested in, in studying cytokine signaling and biology and so on. So I always kept my eye on the literature about cytokines. And then when R21 came out, I think it was discovered around 2000, a couple of groups reported it at the same time. We were fortuitously in a position where we could actually get access to R21 through a collaboration we had with a, with a, a company. And like other people, we started seeing these incredible effects of R21 on B cells. And because I had a lot of interest in cytokine biology and B cells, it was very obvious that this cytokine was doing things to B cells that no other cytokine could do in its own right. Um, so, for example, interleukin-4 is very good at inducing class switching. Uh, interleukin-10 is very good at making B cells become antibody-secreting cells. But R21 sort of did everything. It was the, the jack of all trades for B cell biology. And it just struck me as phenomenal. So uh, during the 2000s, my lab, we did a lot of basic biology work on R21, studying by R21 signaling, R21 function, R21 receptor expression, and things like this in, in, human, in the context of human B-cell activation and had some terrific PhD students that in, the, in the 2000s work on that for a number of years for their PhDs. And they've gone on and done continued great work now, many years later. But then towards the late 2000s, we started working on STAT3 deficiency and... Um, Coincidentally, R21 activates STAT3. So these patients who had STAT3 mutations suddenly became a perfect model for us to work out how important STAT3 was for R21 signaling. And we found that indeed in vitro again, like in the tissue culture dish, R21 required, needed STAT3 to be functional in a B cell for R21 to do its tricks, uh, generally speaking. And that was sort of cool. And it told us something. But it didn't really, uh, um, because so many cytokines didn't activate STAT3, it really didn't tell us whether or not R21 was the factor in vivo that was responsible. And I guess in this field, if you're at these days, um, things move so quickly. If you've got the time, sooner or later, patients are going to turn up with a mutation in your favorite gene. And sure enough, in 2013, was the first report of patients uh, with R21 deficiency and what's called a combined immunodeficiency. So they had poor antibody responses, they had really bad liver disease due to um, cryptosporidial infection, um, they had hypogammaglobulinemia, and so on. Now, of course, these, that first paper reported four patients, two patients from Germany, I think, two patients from Latin America. Uh, so these patients are incredibly rare. Um, but I was very, very lucky, um, again, being in this field of inborn errors where people are incredibly collegial and collaborative and cooperative. Um, we could build a cohort, recruit more patients, do a lot more study, and really show that a lot of the cellular features we were seeing due to STAT3 deficiency were copied in patients who had R21 receptor deficiency. So it pretty much told us that was the daisy chain, you know, R21 activates STAT3, and if you lose either one of those, you get a very similar consequence at the cellular level in terms of defects in antibody production, memory B-cell formation, and so on. So it was a really nice convergence of, you know, my early days and early interest in basic B-cell cytokine biology, doing a whole lot of work on um, B-cells from healthy donors, just trying to understand what R21 can do. And then that was just really um, catapulted to a next level because then we had a human genetic model where we could really test what was and wasn't important in that process. Was it STAT1, STAT3, STAT5, 
and so on. And we could really pin it down to a particular pathway with pretty good clinical and molecular data highlighting that that role, that pathway is, is one of, if not the most important pathway for humoral immunity, long-term humoral immunity in humans anyway. I know it's going to break your heart, but we should probably turn our attention to some of the extrinsic mechanisms that cause IEIs as well, even though it is great to talk about the intrinsic ones. Maybe we could chat a little bit about the CD4 helper cells that you were mentioning. What role do CD4 T follicular helper cells play in B-cell development? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And it, actually, this doesn't break my heart. In fact, um, I have a probably not so secret uh, love of these cells as well. Um, and again, this is this is where serendipity comes into science. Whilst I was very interested in L21 back in the day, I was lucky enough to collaborate with another group in Sydney uh, at the time when microarrays were coming uh, into vogue. This was in the early 2000s. And lo and behold, one of the biggest findings from that study uh, done by a, a colleague who's now at UNSW, uh, Tatiana Shanova, found that the cell type that expressed the highest levels of mRNA for L21 was these T follicular helper cells. So it actually became a natural pivot for me to take to really uh, investigate these T follicular helper cells because we've known since the 60s that you need T cell help to drive a B cell response. And whilst during the you know 80s and 90s and so on, factors were becoming clear that uh, were important for the provision of B cell help from CD4 T cells, uh, that was coming from animal models. It was also coming from immunodeficiencies as well. In the in 1993, there was a huge discovery found around a gene called CD40 ligand. This is a gene that is activated, ex, sorry, expressed transiently on activated CD4 T cells. And that's pretty much the driving signal to activate B cells in the first instance. And this is a classic um, B cell extrinsic requirement for humoral immunity. Uh, so as investigations went on and work was done in many, many labs around many, many countries, it became clear that these T follicular helper cells was a specialized subset of CD4 T cells that sort of fell outside of the paradigm of TH1, TH2, TH17 cells in that it was quite flexible. It had a, a unique transcriptional program. Uh, it had uh, unique requirements for generating for being generated outside of TH1, TH2 type of cells. And it had unique localization anatomically. So they're called T follicular helper cells because that's where they were found in what's called the B cell follicle. So when we, when we look in um, lymph nodes, spleens, tonsils, and so on, they're not just sacs of lymphocytes. They're uh, tissues which have very well demarcated regions where different immune cells partition. So you've got T cell zones, B cell zones, and then under the right conditions, uh, those cells will actually come together. Um, so that they can actually find each other and give each other that dialogue where you need to get activated. So the B cell follicle is where there's a whole lot of B cells in, in spleens and lymph nodes and, and tonsils. And that's where these CD4 T cells could be spotted anatomically. So they're actually called T follicular helper cells because it was named after their anatomical localization rather than any, anything else. And it was found that those cells produce lots of L21. They express this molecule, CD40 ligand, uh, they interact with the B cells to provide all those survival signals that I was mentioning earlier in the whole survival of the fittest context. They respond to antigen presented by the B cell and feedback to give more signals to the to the B cell. So they're pretty much the the sort of conductor of that orchestra or orchestral movements, I guess you'd say, between B cells and T cells in the context of selecting the right B cell for that um, immune response, whether it be an infection or a vaccine, to give you. B cells making the, the most potent type of antibody or generating the best type of memory B cell 
to persist for a long period of time to maintain that level of immunity. So they're, they're very instrumental. If you, and there's, as, as I mentioned, there's several defects, um, CD4 ligand deficiency. There's another disease called ICOS deficiency or another one, X-linked lymphoproliferative disease. Um, these are examples where there's really notable and profound defects just in T follicular helper cells. And, and with that comes this pretty much collapse of a B cell response. Phil Stewart, then the question follows, how can we use T follicular helper cells in the treatment of immunodeficiency and autoimmunity? So it's really interesting. So immunodeficiency and autoimmunity are sort of the, the two sides of the same coin, because often what we're seeing now is genes or pathways that are associated with immunodeficiency. So for example, if you don't have enough signaling through one pathway, you get immunodeficiency. On the other hand, if you have too much of that same pathway, you get autoimmunity. And this CD40 ligand deficiency I was talking about before is a pretty good example of that. Uh, obviously, if, you, if your T cells can't express CD40 ligand, you get this disease called hyper-IgM syndrome. And, and CD40 ligand is uh, very tightly regulated, so it's expressed transiently on T cells, um, I guess, to constrain its activity, because if, if it's overexpressed, you could have all sorts of um, unwanted B cell activation. But actually, that's been found to happen in conditions like lupus or um, some other autoimmune diseases, where you sort of have this persistent expression or upright, dysregulated expression of CD40 ligand driving autoimmune disease. And as an extension of that, it's now pretty well accepted that a lot of um, autoimmune diseases that are characterized by the production of autoantibodies, so remembering that not all autoimmune diseases are caused by antibodies, but a lot of them are, the ones that have a very strong association with autoantibodies, uh, there's pretty clear evidence that the driver of those cells are, are aberrantly activated T follicular helper cells. So again, thinking of other conditions where you've targeted T helper 17 cells or whatever to treat disease, there's a very strong interest in trying to downmodulate the activity of T follicular helper cells as a means of attenuating the severity or the um, modulated management of patients with autoimmune diseases. Now, there's some, some examples there. There's drugs like Abatacept, which is the CTLA-4-IG molecule, which works reasonably well in some in a subset of patients with rheumatoid arthritis. What that does is sort of compete off uh, binding of some co-stimulatory molecules to T-cells and probably attenuates um, T-follicular helper cell function. Uh, there's been ideas around targeting IL-21, for example, uh, as, a, as a product of T-follicular helper cells to attenuate B-cell-mediated autoimmunity. So a lot of targets that are possible uh, in the TFH space, which would certainly be well worth considering um, as part of that rear stat of mod modulating T-fully help cells. And again, go back to the other side. If we can bump up the capacity of T-fully help cell function within a reasonable means, it might improve immunity, particularly in immunodeficient patients, whether they be genetic or just people who, gen who have poor immunity. If we could have vaccines which have adjuvants or some other mechanism which we can amplify the role of TFH cells, we may have better humoral immunity for the immunocompromised, immunodeficient and so on. Well, if we could just pop briefly back to B cells, which I now realise are your co-favourite cell, um, we know they're essential for humans' ability to respond to vaccines. Have there been any inborn errors in immunity involving B cells that have helped us to develop or improve vaccines? So it's interesting, if you look at SARS-CoV-2 infection, what was interesting in the first first wave was that there were studies that were coming out showing that people who lacked B cells, so they had no B cells and they had no antibody, SARS-CoV-2 infection, so COVID-19, was not so bad in those individuals, which, again, I was a little bit surprised about because I'd like to think that B cells are important for some things. Uh, and I'm talking about generalized outcomes. here. These weren't clinical trials. These are purely observational studies. 
But the severity of um, SARS-CoV-2 infection in people who had no B cells was not as dramatically bad as I, I might have expected. But as the pandemic went on, what we realized that people who didn't have antibodies or people who had very poor antibody responses, they either had prolonged SARS-CoV-2 infection or they suffered recurrent infections more frequently than the general population. So again, that really underscored the fact that you needed B cells and probably antibodies in that context for protection against, um, in that case, obviously an infection. But they're just, you know, living models or living examples of, even though initial observation may be paradoxical and it says, oh, you know what, you don't need B cells to protect yourself against acute SARS-CoV-2 infection. Acute SARS-CoV-2 infection or acute infection with anything is very different to long-term humoral immunity. Early protection against infection is, is driven by the innate the combination of innate immunity and adaptive immunity, long-lived immunity is really driven by the adaptive immune system. So whilst those early studies suggested, you know what, B-cells are not that important, it became pretty apparent pretty quickly that if you didn't have B-cells, didn't have antibodies, you would have prolonged infection, prolonged viral shedding, possibly slightly more severe disease as it went on, and recurrent infection much more so than the general population. So that's just a recent example in the context of obviously a very recent global episode of pandemic reinforcing what I've known and many, many other people have known for all along. B cells are really important for a long protection against infection for vaccination success. And finally, what do you feel is the most exciting work coming down the line with B cells or T follicular helper cells from your own lab or the work of others? What should we be looking out for? So there's a couple of really interesting things going on there. One is our realization that there's, uh, as immunologists, we love to subset things. You know, we like to, we have TH1, TH2, TH17, TH9, TH22 cells. We really like to partition cell types into boxes and um, specialized effector functions. Uh, we've been a little bit less frank about that in the B cell world, but it's becoming clear that there's a lot more subsets of B cells out there that we're not quite across. And there's one particularly interesting subset of B cells that my lab's been studying for a while now. Uh, and these are B cells, which we've been studying in the context of uh, monogenic uh, conditions. So these inborn areas of immunity, both in immunodeficiency, but also immune dysregulation. So these cells, they're called CD21 low or TBET expressing B cells. And they were first, actually first discovered 20 plus years ago as being expanded in some people who had common variable immunodeficiency and immune dysregulation. And they were a very good biomarker for the subsequent development of things like splenomegaly or lung disease. So for a long time, they were known as a biomarker of, of, a, of disease severity, but they started becoming interested to people because they were being discovered in, to be overrepresented in things like lupus, in um, Sjogren's syndrome. Uh, and then we found them to be expanded in a number of these inborn errors. So people who like to see to four, people who have overactive STAT3, some other conditions. And in 2022, we had a, a couple of studies which really sort of broke down how these cells are generated, what you need, what pathways are important for generating these CD21 low TBAT expressing B cells. But the problem is we don't really know what these cells are doing. Uh, we know how they're made, sort of. We know when they're overexpressed. We know or when they're expanded. We know when they're contracted. And there's lots of studies showing they're important for um, responses to some vaccines. They're very well associated with um, autoimmune diseases, uh, and they're very well associated with aging in mouse models. And it's like, how can this one cell type be everywhere and also be nowhere? Um, they've been implicated in health, in, implicated in disease, implicated in immune dysregulation. So really unpicking what's going on with that subset and 
uh, how can that cell subset be so um, almost omnipresent in, in a number of diametrically opposed clinical scenarios is a, a really interesting area for, for discovery and investigation. Along those lines, again, some work we've done, but work done by many other people, there's a particular subset of T follicle helper cells, which seems to be promoting the generation of that cell type, that B cell subset. So really drilling down on both the T and the B cell side of that pathway and that aspect of immunity or immune dysregulation, I think is going to be very interesting, um, not just from a basic perspective, but again, clinical intervention, these cells have seemed to be aberrantly functional in HIV infection, in SARS-CoV-2 infection, in hepatitis C infection, but as I said, also possibly important in things like influenza vaccination. So delineating what those cells are doing, I think is going to be really important and really exciting uh, to see what's happening in health and in disease. Professor Stuart Tangi, Senior Principal Research Fellow at the Garvin Institute in Sydney. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Wow, that was, again, just amazing. We have so many wonderful interviewees on this show. One of the things that Stuart mentioned that I found really, really exciting was that these cells that can live in the bone marrow can literally be there for decades. So just individual cells that don't die off for 40, 50, 60 years and more. I just find it so hard to get my head around that, but I know it's true. It's really, really amazing. Yeah, so some of your B-cells have been around longer than the iPod. Um, I love it, brilliant. <laughs> I, I I thought it was fascinating what he said. Even for somebody who definitely has favorite cells, he said that the immune system, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. No, absolutely. And I think one of the other interesting things that that he's really highlighted for me is how he uses these orphan or rare diseases to study the normal immune system. So finding diseases that happen naturally, mutations that happen naturally, but rarely in the population and using those to really delineate what it is our immune system is doing. And also we can then use that specific knowledge to treat those diseases if and when a drug becomes available that can treat them. I just think that's really amazing ingenuity and it's just it's fascinating the amount of of research he's been able to do over the years on all of this yeah no it's it's great to be able to use defects that occur in only a handful of people and use that to apply stuff to b-cell biology for everybody it really is so i suppose that's it for this month vianca over to you (laughs) okay i do have a joke lined up so what did the lymphocyte precursor cells say I don't know, Bianca, what did the lymphocyte precursor cell say? <laughs> to be or not to be? Oh, that is the question. Very good. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm delighted with how well these jokes are turning out. So if you're looking for me, I'll be celebrating. <laughs> oh my God, you've, you've officially pushed it too far. <laughs> Right, lovely. Okay, don't forget, if you want to get in touch with us with comments or questions about the show, please email us at immunotpodcast at gmail.com. That's immunot spelled I-M-M-U-N-O-T-E-A podcast at gmail.com. Or you can tweet us at immunot, that's T-E-A. We'd like to thank our guest today, Professor Stuart Tangi, our executive producer, Professor Niall Conlon, and our editor, Aidan McKelvey. This episode of Immunity was sponsored by Farming Group. Thanks so much to you for listening and we'll chat to you again next month. Goodbye for now.